0: all right good morning again funny uh as we were singing that song i remembered that when i was in campus ministry uh, our worship team played that once and there was a student there who had become a christian just a few weeks before and she was very confused and she she said why would we ask for god to send fire on us that sounds like a terrible thing and um, i thought yeah, if I didn't, you know, grow up surrounded by this kind of language, then I would also be very confused. So, for anyone who might be confused, um, fire from heaven is sometimes used to refer to the, the Holy Spirit. God sends his Holy Spirit to us. And and one of the reasons that we, we refer to the Holy Spirit in this way is is, is God's fire has a way of purging uh, or cleansing us. And... and um, Uh, removing the things in us that are not of him, and so when God sends his fire, it uh, is a purifying fire that makes us more like him and empowers us uh, to do his work in the world. So that's what we're asking for, not that we would just um, uh, burn up and cease to exist. Uh, (laughs) So anyway, uh, this is our final week in our Genesis series, week nine. If you were here two weeks ago, hopefully you remember me explaining that we're actually just doing the first 11 chapters of Genesis this time around, which, which is known as the primeval history, the ancient history of the world. In Genesis 12, there's a shift uh, where we focused on the life of Abraham. And eventually I would like to do that in Genesis part two, but I didn't wanna be in the same book of the Bible for a whole year. Uh, which is what we would probably be be doing if we went through the entire book. So we're going to do something new uh, starting next week. But uh, before we finish 1 through 11, we've got one last major event, which is the Tower of Babel. And when I realized that the story of Babel was going to be following on New Year's Eve day, my first thought was uh, maybe we should postpone this because that's just not very New Year's-ish. But as I reflected on this story, I realized that this is actually a really appropriate one for New Year's Eve day. I didn't plan that out, but it really is, and the reason might not be obvious right now, but it will be by the time we get to the end of the sermon. I want to do a quick recap of where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, We talked about the events immediately after the flood, and I said there were two main takeaways from the events right after the flood. Uh, One is that God is stubbornly faithful to his plan to bless humanity. Uh, God gave humanity a special blessing when he created them in chapter one. And uh, humanity abused that blessing. Part of that blessing involved uh, giving humanity lots of authority and power and creation. Uh, Adam and Eve abused that authority. Cain abused that authority. And more and more people uh, abused that authority until things got so bad that God needed to flood the earth And then you might be thinking that in Genesis 9, after the flood, that God is going to establish a new system because humanity doesn't do well with authority. But no, he stubbornly reasserts that same blessing. And uh, I realize some of you might be a bit concerned that I would use a word like stubborn to refer to God because usually that's a, a negative term. And I mean no disrespect by that. I want to explain why I've chosen that word specifically. That was very intentional on my part. One reason is because you'll remember it, (laughs) you know? If I just said God is faithful, well, you've heard that a million times. But to hear stubbornly faithful, that's a little bit more likely to stick. And the other reason is because I think that that term actually fits. If you look up the the dictionary definition of that word, it is having or showing dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position on something. And I think that's what we see here. God has a dogged determination To bless humanity. Now there's one additional part to the definition. It says, especially in spite of good arguments or reasons not to do so. And again, I think that's what we see in the Genesis text. There are very good reasons for God not to give humanity authority again. Um, He he says uh, that every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. He says that after the flood. So what God is doing here, it's not an entirely rational, logical move to give humanity all this authority again, okay? But there is, there is a rationality, a logic that is higher uh, than just pure rationality. It's the, the rationality of love and the rationality of faithfulness, and that's what we see God demonstrating here. Um, but I do think there is truly a stubbornness in it, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful stubbornness. It's a good thing. I thank God for it. Um, So God is stubbornly faithful. And the second thing we learn after the flood, which complements the first thing, is that human beings are stubbornly dysfunctional. Right? Uh, We looked at the story of Noah's family post-flood, and three things happen. Dad gets drunk. One of the kids really disrespects Dad. And Dad gets so mad that he curses one part of the family. Dysfunction. And remember, this was the cream of the crop. This was the best family before the flood, and this is what we see after the flood, dysfunction. So immediately after the flood, God is stubbornly faithful and human beings are stubbornly dysfunctional. Now, the Tower of Babel story is a story of another way that human dysfunction reveals itself after the flood, only it's not just the dysfunction of Noah's immediate family, but the dysfunction of his descendants several generations removed. Two weeks ago, in Genesis 9, we were looking at the story of Noah's family's dysfunction. Uh, This week, we're moving into Genesis 10. We're not going to read anything from Genesis 10. The gist of it is that it is a genealogy of Noah's sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And the purpose of this genealogy, or one of the major purposes of it, is to show us that humanity is growing and multiplying, which was the blessing that God gave to humanity in chapter one, and then again in chapter nine, he said, be fruitful and multiply. So that is what is happening. Humanity is growing and multiplying on the earth. And then in Genesis 11, we stop to learn about something that happened as humanity was growing and multiplying, which of course is the Tower of Babel story. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 11, verse 1. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So they're uh, pretty technologically advanced here in Babel. Uh, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. All right, now, as with all stories in Genesis 1 through 11, this story provokes questions, especially for modern people like ourselves. But of all the questions that this story raises, there's one that I really wanna focus on, one that I think has the most relevance for us today, which is the question, what did these people do wrong? What did they do wrong? God sees what they're doing, and he's so concerned about it that he takes this very drastic action of miraculously intervening, right? He, he sends uh, languages to them, essentially. He confuses their speech, so now different people are speaking different languages. Uh, supernatural intervention. And because nobody can, can communicate with each other anymore, their group project is sabotaged. Which, when you think about it, is a pretty creative way of dealing with the problem. Um, I, don't, I know for myself, that group projects are, have, have always been very challenging, whether they be school or work-related, and you guys probably know that if you're doing a group project, the only way that it's gonna get done is if everybody can actually communicate with each other. The efficiency of a group is directly related to how well they communicate, right? Uh, so if you can't communicate, you can't get much done. And so that's how God deals with this problem. Uh, by sa- he sabotages the group project by changing their languages. But the question remains, what is wrong with the project itself? Why does God intervene in this miraculous way? Uh, We're told that they they settled on, Hmm. maybe batteries are dead. You can go to the next one. Uh, We're told that they settled on a plane. Nothing wrong with settling on a plane, right? We're told that they use bricks and, and mortar. I don't know of any uh, commands against doing that. We're told that they built a city. Again, I've never heard anything wrong with building a city. They build a tower, a high tower. I, I don't know about you, but I've never heard on principle that there's anything wrong with building a high tower. Certainly, since the time of Babel, we've built many towers far. Higher than Babel, but I don't know any Christians who are on principle opposed to skyscrapers or something like that because they're too high, right? So what did they do? What was the problem? Well, the key to answering that is verse 4. It says that they said to, them, to each other, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So here, we're told not just what they did, but why they did it. And there's two problems here, okay? Uh, There's a problem with the goal of the group project. And there's a problem with the motivation for the group project. Now, their goal is what? Well, their goal is not simply to build a city or a tower. But their goal is to not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, you might still wonder, well, what is wrong with that? Well, the primary reason that that is wrong is because it was a direct violation of God's plan for humanity. Uh, You might remember Genesis 1.28, as we have referenced so many times during this series, God's initial words to humanity, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then that same blessing was reiterated after the flood in Genesis 9. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And I want us to notice that phrase there, fill the earth. Right. So what we see in the Tower of Babel story is a bunch of people getting together and saying, let's do what we can to prevent this whole filling the earth thing from happening. You know, we don't want to be scattered over, over the whole earth. We want, to, we want to all be together in one place. So the goal of the group project is in direct conflict with God's plans. Now, you might ask, well, why was it so important to God that we spread out over the whole earth? Well, at that point, it's just speculation. I don't know exactly why that was God's desire, but we know that that's what it was. He didn't want us all just to be lo- localized in one place. He wanted us to, to spread out and fill the whole earth. But the thing I really wanna focus on is not the problem of the goal, but the problem of their motivation, okay? We're told that they were building the city so that they may make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And that's really the primary problem here because you don't have the sin of the wrong goal unless you have the motivation in the first place, right? So what is wrong with that motivation? That, that's the question. Um, <clears throat> well, so let's ask ourselves the question, what does it mean that they wanted to make a name for themselves? Well, I can think of two things. Uh, the first thing is that they wanted to gain fame and glory. Right? They wanted people from, from other places to think about Babel, to think about that city and just go, wow, the people there are amazing, the architecture is amazing, they're, they're incredible. Babel is amazing. You know, they wanted people to, to go, wow, when they thought of their city. But there's something deeper going on here than just a desire for fame and for glory. It's definitely part of the problem here, but the problem, I think, goes even deeper. What this is saying is that the people desire to define themselves. They say, let's make a name for ourselves. In other words, let us be the ones who determine our identity. Let us be the ones who decide who we are. And this this attitude is really the opposite of the attitude of saying, you know, let's follow God's will for our lives. What we see here, it, it might seem subtle, but I really think it's here, is this is the desire for independence from God. Okay, this is the desire for human autonomy. And really, it's the same desire that led Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Um, when she did that, she declared that she was the one who defined what was right and what was wrong. She was the one who had the right to make the judgment about what she should and should not do not God. Now, I would say that in the culture that we live in today, it's fairly normal to have the mindset of Babel, okay, the mindset that just says, let's make a name for ourselves. Uh, we reflect the mindset of Babel when we say, you know, let's pursue wealth and fame and reputation, and when we say, let's decide for ourselves what is right and wrong and what the purpose of life should be. And I really think that one of the places that you see this mindset show up a lot is in the stories that we as a culture tell. You can tell a lot about a culture by the stories that they tell. And one of the most common stories in this time that we live in is the story of someone learning to follow his or her heart. Now, I don't want to be overly simplistic here. It's not like that advice is entirely wrong. You know, sometimes you need to listen to the voice within, rather than just what the world around you is telling you, what your culture might be saying, um, what peer pressure might be saying. Um, And it's good to be self-reflective. It's good to think about what's going on inside of me, what do I feel, and why. Uh, Sometimes we have intuitions that are important to pay attention to. So, you know, I don't want to say, "Oh, follow your heart." That's just incredibly, you know, terrible advice 100% of the time. But what we have to recognize is that our hearts can lead us astray. Right? As God said, uh, back right after the flood, he said every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. You know, our desires are not always healthy, and our intuitions are not always correct. And sometimes the advice, follow your heart, is really just a pretty way of saying, you know, do what you want. Who cares what anyone else thinks, even God. And that is not good advice at all. So we have to be very careful in the culture that we're in right now not to fall victim to the mindset of Babel, the let's make a name for ourselves mindset. Now, every one of us, okay, whether we are a follower of Jesus or, or not, is a sinner. And what that means is that every one of us has an impulse in ourselves to make our hearts, our desires, the ultimate thing in life, Um, to take our heart and elevate it to the status of ultimate, supreme significance. And that means that as I've been saying what I've been saying, I'm sure there's some of us, maybe even most of us, who are thinking, well, that's just selfish of God. (laughs) You know, why does God get to have the right to determine what the purpose of life is? Why does he get to say what's right and wrong? You know, why can't I do what I want? And if we feel that that emotion rising up in us, that sinful nature, what I want to encourage us to do is to recognize that part of the reason that God doesn't want our own hearts to be the ultimate thing in our lives is because he cares about us. Because he cares about us. Uh, God created us and he knows that our hearts are not fit to be the ultimate thing in our lives. He knows that when we try to put our hearts and our desires at the very center of our lives, it causes problems, it leads to disorder and chaos. And an analogy that I really like that I think helps to capture this reality is the analogy of the solar system, where you think of the solar system as a visual representation of your life. So let's imagine this is your life, and every planet in the solar system represents some aspect of your humanity. So, uh, you know, one planet is your work and your career, uh, another planet is your relationships with your family, another planet is your sexual behavior, another planet is your hobbies and the way that you spend your time, another ho- uh, planet is your money and what you do with it, okay? The thing that is supposed to be the sun in the solar system of our lives is God and his will for us, or more specifically, Jesus Christ, right? And every planet in our lives is supposed to be surrendered to his will. Uh, You might say every planet is supposed to be in line with the orbit created by the sun, which is the will of God for our lives. Now, the mindset of Babel, the mindset that says, let's make a name for ourselves, the solar system representation of that mindset has something different for the sun, right? The sun is not the will of God in that mindset. Uh, The sun would be something like human desire, or, you know, my human heart, my human longings. And the reason I think this is such a helpful analogy is because in order for a solar system to exist, There has to be something in the middle that's really big, okay? There has to be something in the middle that's very weighty. You might even say something that's very glorious. Because if you don't have something big in the middle of the solar system, then there isn't enough gravitational force to hold everything in orbit, right? If you you replace the sun with something way smaller, all these planets are just gonna be flying off in outer space, some of them might crash into each other because there's nothing big enough to hold them in orbit. And this is why I think this analogy is so helpful in us understanding why it is good and loving for God to tell us to put his will at the center of our lives rather than our own. Um, Because if he's not at the center, uh, there's not enough gravitational force, there's not enough significance in weight to hold everything together. Because our human desires, they change, you know, They were finite, Uh, God is infinite, we are limited in our perspective, but God is omniscient. And so our human desires, when you put them in the center of the solar system, it's like putting Pluto there, which isn't isn't even a planet, you know? You put Pluto in the middle, and then everything is just gonna start spiraling out of control. Uh, We need the will of God at the center of our lives in order to bring order and coherence to our lives. Another reason why it's loving for God to ask us to put his will at the center of our lives rather than our own is because we actually need some rules and boundaries in our lives in order for our lives to be purposeful and meaningful. Uh, I'll say that again. (laughs) We actually need some rules and boundaries in our lives in order for our lives to be fulfilling and meaningful, purposeful and meaningful. And I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive But it really is true. Sometimes we think that a life of true freedom will be a life that just has no restrictions at all, no rules, even rules from God. Uh, But that's really not true. Good rules from a good God actually help to make our lives fulfilling. And the analogy I like to use to demonstrate this is the game of tennis. Um, I have not played much tennis. I don't really like tennis. For me, tennis is like ping-pong in a nightmare. <laughs> but one of the things that I've realized in the little amount of time that I've played tennis is that the boundaries are really important. Because in tennis, it doesn't take much effort to hit the ball way out of bounds, right? If you give it, if you really wail on it, you can hit it right out of the court, you know. Way out of the parking lot, and just you can lose the ball just right, right off the, the serve. Um, now, if there were, imagine if in tennis there were no boundaries, okay? Maybe the only rule is you have to get it over the net. Well, tennis would be the most boring and frustrating game to watch because the only thing that would happen is that the person would serve, they would hit it as hard as they could, and then you would lose the ball. Right? And then that person would get the point because the other person would never have any hope of returning the ball. And the game would just go, you know, however high it goes based on the number of serves that it takes for the p- person to get the, the points. The thing that makes tennis interesting are the boundaries, right? Because when the boundaries exist, you can actually have a volley, and the volley is the interesting part of the game. That's why you watch it, is to see the volleys. So, similarly... <laughs> A life without any rules or boundaries, the rules and boundaries that God creates, is not fulfilling, it's not meaningful, and it's not even interesting. We need those sorts of boundaries in our lives in order to enable us to be fully alive. Now, I said that this story was especially appropriate one for New Year's. And the reason I say that is because this is the time of year when people are unusually reflective about their lives. And this is the time when people make resolutions about how they're gonna live their lives differently in the coming year. And I think that's actually a good thing. If that's a practice that you have, I don't discourage that at all. Of course, we don't need it to be January 1st to make changes in our lives, but it's as good of a time as any. I mean, January 1st reminds us that we've made it another full rotation around the sun, You know, life is impermanent and time is passing and, you know, it's a good time to take stock of your life and reflect on what can I do to make the most of the time that I have left. So don't take what I'm about to say as discouraging you from from doing that, but I want to warn us as we make plans for the next year, let's be careful not to have the babble mindset, right? The mindset that says, let's make a name for, for ourselves. Let me make a name for myself. Uh, Because a lot of the time, that's what New Year's resolutions amount to. Not always, but often. Often, they are resolutions that are about gaining attention or glory or reputation. Now, probably the most common New Year's resolution is something about health, right? Um, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to lose weight. Now, those in themselves are not bad resolutions. Um, They're they're good resolutions. But they can be made with a Babel mindset, right? Um, The Babel mindset sees getting fit and getting healthy as a way of making a name for ourselves, a way of achieving glory, attention, reputation. When really we should be motivated to be fit and healthy because... God has given us these bodies, and we should be good stewards of them, right? And also because if we want to be physically equipped to do the things that God is calling us to do, we have to take care of ourselves. You know, if, if, we, if we don't take good care of ourselves, and then God is trying to lead us into mission work overseas or something like that, it could be really hard to do that if we're unhealthy because we haven't eaten the right things for a long time and haven't exercised, you know? So, um, and of course, let's be honest, I mean, as we age, We can only do so much (laughs) to take care of our bodies. Our bodies break down. That's part of life. But it is a good thing to take care of them, not to make a name for ourselves, but in order to be equipped to do whatever God might call us to do, in order to be good stewards of the bodies that we have. Um, You know, I, I was thinking about how we're, we're, it's easy for us to succumb to the Babel mindset, and I thought, I think one of the reasons that it's easy for us to fall prey to it is because we can accomplish a lot with a Babel mindset. We can get a lot done by worldly standards. You might have noticed in verse 6, um, God said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, I, I think there's some hyperbole going on there. I don't think God literally means, oh, they're gonna be able to do anything. But what he means is if human beings working together to try and make a name for themselves can do incredible things. And if you look throughout history, you can see, yeah, when we get together, when we, ha- when we uh, work together, we can do remarkable stuff. You know, we built cities and towers way, way bigger than Babel and we've got computers and smartphones and the internet. You know, I think that's the sort of thing that God kind of has in mind in there. Nothing's going to be impossible for them. They're going to be able to do amazing stuff. There's incredible potential that we have in the authority and power that God has given us. But, as this story also reminds us, it's foolish to not be focused on his will. It's foolish to just be focused on making a name for ourselves. Because God is always greater than we are. And if, it, if God really wants to, he can always sabotage our plans, even through miraculous means. And ultimately, even if we build some really great towers, if we do it for the wrong reasons, they're not going to last. So, to close this morning, uh, I want to encourage us to reflect on the new year by asking some questions that can help us to think about the new year without the Babel mindset. Okay, So not just, what am I going to do this new year, you know, to make a better me or whatever? but some, some more pointed questions that help us to think about the new year, hopefully the way the Holy Spirit would want us to. So uh, these are my, my suggestions. I encourage you guys to write these down, think about them throughout this week. Uh, first one: How can I take better care of myself physically and emotionally? so that I'm equipped to do whatever God calls me to do. And these will be left up for a little while, so if you need some time to write them down, don't worry. Second, are there any gifts or talents I have that can be a blessing to other people? If so, how can I take steps to develop those gifts and talents this year? And what are some ways that I can use them in the new year that I'm not currently using them? So examples of gifts and talents would be things like writing, hospitality, music, craftsmanship, those sorts of things. And then lastly, what are some practices I can commit to this year in order to better know and follow God's will for my life? So. If the purpose of our lives is not to say, how can I make a name for myself, but what is God's will for my life, then we have to get better at listening for God's will and recognizing what his will is. And so this is where things like Bible reading plans come in, uh, contemplative prayer practices, um, you know, whatever you, you think you might need to do in order to help yourself to be better in tune with God's will for your life this year. So this is, this is my exhortation to you. Right now, the band's going to come up and play a song, and I encourage you to reflect a little bit on these questions. But also, you know, write them down. Think about them throughout the week. And this year, instead of trying to make a name for ourselves, let's let God name us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a new year, and we thank you for the sense that it gives us of a new start. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use that in our lives. I pray that you would help us to take the time to take stock of our lives and, and to reflect on how we can um, better put you as the sun of the solar system of our lives and, and how the planets in our life can better orbit around your will. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just You give us wisdom and insight as we think about this coming year. And, uh, Lord, I pray that we would not make the mistakes of the people at Babel. Uh, I pray that we would be focused on your will and that as we do that, Lord, you would bring order uh, and stability to our lives and peace. We give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.